0: Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2, Philippians chapter 2. And guys, just before you go back, just stay here for one second. Uh, As is our routine, when I get up to preach, we always have the brothers with Bibles, and then they make their way to the back. And if anybody needs one, we say, get their attention. And I want to underscore the importance of that, because uh, from time to time when I'm preaching and I say, look at verse such and such, I see people who are not looking at anything, And as we're preaching, we look at the Bible, we want you to look at the Bible together. And that's why we offer a copy of the word for you to have in your hand as we go through. Some of you might have that on your phone. If you're texting or checking the latest score or something like that, God knows all about that. So, but you need to have something that has scripture, the Bible itself, or you have it on your phone. And so now these guys are going to make their way to the back. And if you don't have a Bible, if you don't have it on your phone, then get their attention, and those Bibles are marked at the passage we're going to be considering, Philippians chapter 2. So thank you, guys, if you'll make your way to the back. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be reading in verse 12, Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, Not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, in order to understand that passage, we need to know what is meant by one of its key phrases, a key phrase in verse 12 work out your salvation. One very popular and wrong interpretation is that work out your salvation mean works, means to work for your salvation. It's a sad fact that the vast majority of even professing Christianity believes that we go to heaven. Because of what we do. But the Bible says something quite different. Famously, in Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Similarly, in Titus chapter 3, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures say that Abraham, who lived during the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, was not saved because of his works of righteousness, but simply because he believed. The Bible says this. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, I said a bit ago that the vast majority of professing Christianity believes that we go to heaven because of what we do, despite very clear passages like that to the contrary. So why is that? Why do so many people believe that you have a relationship with God and you'll spend eternity with him based upon the merit of what you do, your own works? Well, I believe it's the idea that one must do something to either gain a place in heaven or to maintain his reservation there seems natural. I believe that's the reason that so many people believe that false notion. I mean, after all, we all know that there is no such thing as a free lunch. We all know that you get what you pay for. We all know that nobody gets something for nothing. And so then we reason that it must be the same way with going to heaven. But grace, in fact, means you get something for nothing. At least nothing that you do. And that's quite foreign to our natural way of thinking. And that's why relatively few people believe in it. Grace is not natural, grace is supernatural. And it takes an act of grace to believe in grace. It takes an act of God's grace upon your mind and your heart and my mind and my heart for us to change the way we naturally think. And then by that supernatural act of God receive the gift of free grace that he gives us in Jesus Christ. So when this passage says work out your salvation in verse 12, it neither says nor teaches that we work for our salvation. Now, in order to understand what that phrase means, we need to remember something that I alluded to in a message a few weeks ago. Namely, that there are three aspects to our salvation. Past and present and future. There is the past aspect of our salvation. That is, there was a time if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you've been saved, if you have a relationship with God through him, if you've been born again, then that means there was a time in the past where you heard the gospel message, God moved upon your heart, and you embraced that message and the Savior who's central to it. That happened in the past at a point in time. So I reminded you a few weeks ago that Ephesians chapter 1 says, you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed. So that's what happened in the past. When we first believed and were saved and delivered from the penalty of sin. And you will always be a child of God if indeed that has happened to you. But the Bible speaks of our salvation as future, not just something that happened in the past, but future as well. Romans 13 says our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. That is the full salvation, the full deliverance that is promised to us who belong to God, the full deliverance from sin, we will be removed from the very presence of sin at that time. In the future, when we're with the Lord and we're apart from this world and our sin nature is no more, we will be saved, delivered from the very presence of sin. But now, in the present, there's a sense in which we are being saved. That is, we are daily being transformed because we're being delivered saved from the practice of sin in our lives. So I was saved from the penalty of sin in the past. I was saved from the presence of sin or will be saved from the presence of sin in the future. And I'm being saved from the practice of sin in the present. So when verse 12 says to work out your salvation, it's telling us to live outwardly in our present daily experience what we are already in our position before God. I am saved and I'm a child of God. And my position has moved from an enemy of God outside the family of God to one adopted by him and he is my father. That's all true of me if this thing has happened in the past. And the promises of glorification in the future are mine and guaranteed if indeed that has happened. But in the meantime, I am to live out I am to display the reality of that in my daily experience, my daily Christian walk. Remember back in chapter 1 and verse 27. In fact, take a look at that if you would. Chapter 1 and verse 27. It says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what it means to work out your own salvation. It's to live what you already are. It's to display before men what you are now before God. It is to show people what God already sees. And so I've titled this message, you see at the top of the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, we have an outline for you for today's message as each week in the program. And at the top it has the title, I've titled it show and tell. We, by these worthy Christian lives, the way we conduct ourselves, show the reality of the relationship that we have with God. And it has an impact on others who are watching. Show and tell. Let's pray then and ask God to help us. Our Father, we thank you again for this opportunity now to open the Bible. To look at your word and to see their truth. Because, Lord, we are surrounded with falsehood, bombarded with falsehood. We must have your word in order to be able to discern, to sort out, to separate what is true from what is false. So, Lord, help us to see there the truth of today of who you are, who we are in relation to you, and how we are to live because of what you've done for us. And may that distinction that you have made in us and are making in us, because we are your people, cause us to make a difference in the spheres of influence to which you have assigned us. So, Lord, help us to glean that from your word with attentive minds and open hearts. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I say in your outline, first of all, that worthy Christian conduct imitates Christ. Worthy Christian conduct imitates Christ. Now I say that for this reason. Verse 12 of chapters 2 begins with the word therefore. So it's referring back to the description of the Lord Jesus' humiliation when he laid aside the glories of heaven and he became a man to die on the cross. This command to us in verse 12 to live obedient lives is based on the example that was set by the Lord Jesus' who was, according to verse 8, and we saw this a few weeks ago in verse 8, obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because he obeyed, therefore this is what you are to do. As you have always obeyed, now continue to work out your salvation. So it connects what we're looking at today with what we saw a few weeks ago in the life of the Lord Jesus. So how was it that Jesus obeyed? He obeyed by withholding nothing. That passage in verses 5 through 8 teaches that he did not grasp what was his from eternity past. He did not grasp his life, but rather he laid it down. He withheld nothing. How did he obey? He also endured all things. Although he shuddered from the horrors of the cross, nevertheless, he submitted to God's will, even the hideous death of a cross. He withheld nothing. He endured all things. So that means for us, friends, there is no room for a Christian life that is a cafeteria-style obedience. You know what I mean by that? You go through a cafeteria and you say, I'll take some of this and I'll take some of that. And that's what many of us do in our Christian lives. You know, I've got this part. I've got that show up at church piece on Sunday morning, but that's as far as I'm going to go with it. Hear this. Jesus commanded a bunch more stuff than that. And we're going to see that because he's the one who commanded it, it ought then to motivate us to carry those things out. No cafeteria style uh, obedience. We cannot be selective in what we choose to obey. We must follow Christ's example, withholding nothing and enduring all things. The Bible tells us in First John, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So worthy Christian behavior imitates Christ. And I say, secondly, in your outline, worthy Christian conduct obeys Christ. Verse 12, therefore, as you have always obeyed, now continue. As you've always obeyed in my presence and now much more in my absence, now continue to work out your salvation. Continue to obey. So, this obedience is not something we do and then at some point we stop. The Philippians, in fact, were obeying, as that verse acknowledges. You've always obeyed. Back in chapter 1, in verse 5, it says that they've been active partners in the gospel from the first day of their salvation until the present time of Paul's writing this letter to them. But of course, they're not perfect, and the danger of dissension in their midst is brewing. That's indicated by the call to humility and selflessness in their dealings with one another. In chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 that we saw a few weeks ago. They are obeying, but they need to be encouraged to continue. So verse 12 says, as you have always obeyed, now continue. That word obey. It's a compound Greek word that means literally this. To hear under. Obey. Hear. Under. The idea is that you're You hear from someone what it is you're to do and you place yourself under the authority of that one and you do it. So you hear and you submit. Now, why should I hear and submit to the commands of Christ that are given not only in the Gospels, the first four books of your New Testament that record his life on earth? Why should I hear and submit to the commands of Christ, not only in the Gospels? But throughout His Word. And in your outline, I give you a number of reasons. The first is this. We obey because He is Lord. We obey because He is Lord. That word, therefore, in verse number 12, points us back not only to verses 5 through 8 of chapter 2, but to the whole prior passage, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. In verse 9 says, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. D.A. Carson says, every knee shall bow. Therefore, we do well to live in the light of the fact that we shall all bow before Christ on the last day and give an account to him. Therefore, obey. Because every knee, including mine and including yours, is going to bow before him. What is that name that's above every name that belongs to Jesus? Jesus has given a lot of names, a lot of titles in the Bible. Emmanuel, God with us. Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, the Almighty, Ancient of Days, Good Shepherd, the Lamb, the Bread of Life, the Alpha and the Omega. Many names and titles given to Jesus. But what is this name that's above every name? Verse 11 says, Every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that title Lord is the name that's above every name. Because this is the personal name for God. In the first part of your Bible, the the personal name for God was Yahweh. And you know, most of you, that the Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew, the New Testament in Greek. But there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And when they would come across that word Yahweh, that personal name for God, it was translated with the Greek word that we have here in verse 11, Lord. He's given the name, he is Yahweh, he's given the name Lord. The title Lord is the ultimate, highest name because it means he is God. And so the prophet Isaiah, through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord says, I am the Lord. That is my name. It is no one else's name. It's the name that trumps all other titles. If he's God, he's the master. He's the Lord. He makes the rules. He sets the circumstances in which each of us are to obey. And we are to give unquestioned obedience to him to hear and submit. To what he says, because it is the Lord to whom we are accountable, it is the Lord who assigns the circumstances of our service, including whatever suffering we may go through. And then we obey consistently because his lordship in our lives never changes. So verse 12 says, do this not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Because our lives are lived for and before the one who is Lord. Then that's why the obedience of verse 12 is to be worked out, it says, with fear and trembling. It says continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So here's what Paul, who wrote it, is saying. You're obeying. You've been obeying from day one. Now continue. There are these rumblings of difficulty between you. And disunity in your midst. Do not disobey by allowing that to take root. Continue to obey the Lord Jesus in your relationships with one another. In your relationships with one another, be humble and selfless as He was, and that's what sent Him to the cross. Therefore, obey in this way. Because you imitate Christ. Because He is the Lord. And because he is the Lord, and he is the Lord all the time and every moment of every day, whether I, Paul, am there or not, you obey. In my presence or even in my absence, you are still in the presence of the Lord. You are still living quorum Deo, before the face of God. And you do that with fear and trembling. The word trembling is the Greek word from which we get our English words, tremor and trauma. It pictures someone in a state of shock. The word fear can have a range of meaning It can mean something that's frightening, but it can also mean respect and reverence. Here I think it would be a good way to summarize it to say it's expressing the attitude of seriousness with which we are to pursue our Christian lives. We're to persevere in the Christian life because it's a serious matter in light of Christ's lordship and the fact that we are going to give an account to him and because he is lord of all and we are representing him. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul describes how he came to the city of Corinth. He came to a city that had a reputation of being one of the most wicked cities in the Roman Empire. And in the midst of that filth in that city, his task was to proclaim the grace of God that would transform lives. Before he went there, the book of Acts in chapter 18 tells us that he was troubled, he was fearful. And he was considering not going into Corinth at all. And Acts chapter 18 tells us that the Lord appeared to him and said, go to that city, Paul. And here's why. Because I have many people in that city. Despite the fact that you're afraid, you go. And When you go and you preach, I have people there who are going to respond. And so he did go, but he tells them when he writes to the Corinthians, I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. It was not that he was afraid of what the Corinthians might do to him, but that he trembled over the awesomeness of his task to represent God Almighty in the midst of that community. It was overwhelming to him. That's the kind of seriousness that with which we should undertake the task of living for and before our Lord. We obey because he is Lord. I say in your outline, we obey because he is exalted. Chapter 2 tells us he suffered and was vindicated. Back in chapter 2 that we saw a few weeks ago, verses 5 through 11... In verses 5 through 8 we see his suffering and he became obedient even to death on a cross at the end of verse 8. But then in verse 11, excuse me, in verse 9, because he did that, therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name. He's vindicated even though he was suffering. And because of that example that our Lord suffered But is now exalted. Our Lord suffered, but was eventually vindicated. Then we too are to obey in the midst of whatever suffering God has assigned to us. He suffered and was vindicated, and we will be vindicated in our obedience, even when that obedience calls us to suffering. The Bible says this numerous times. James chapter 1 the one who perseveres under trial will receive the crown of life. Hebrews says persevere so that you will receive what he has promised. Our motivation is to live to live out our salvation and that includes that the one who commands is our Lord, that our obedience even if hard and difficult will be reward, rewarded by God in the future, just as his obedience was vindicated. And so why do we obey? We obey because he's Lord. We obey because he's exalted. Here's a third reason. We obey because God is working in us. God is working in us. And that's what verse 13 tells us. Verse 12 tells us, Therefore, as you have always obeyed, now continue. Not only in my presence, but now especially in my absence, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13 says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Notice the word for at the beginning of that verse. Verse 12 tells us to obey by working outwardly the salvation that we have. And then verse 13 starts with for or because. Obey because God is at work in you. (laughs) Obey, that is, work, verse 12, work out your salvation. Now follow the logic. Obey, work it out because God's working. Now you might think just the opposite. If God does the work, then why not just let him have at it? Why do I need to be called on to obey if God is the one doing it in me? Maybe I should do as many have suggested over the years, let go and let God. Take a passive approach to Christian living. Rather than this truth in verse 13, that God is actively at work in his people to produce what he desires, rather than that being a disincentive to us obeying and actively obeying, it is rather intended and should be and incentive for us rather than a deterrent it should be an incentive Incentive because God is energizing my work then I know my work can be done I know it can be successful if I don't think I have the ability to do something then I won't be inclined to undertake it and the truth is you don't have the ability on your own Jesus said in John 15 and verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. But this promise is you obey because, precisely because God is at work, precisely because God is empowering you. So take, for example, it's the new year, first, you know, second full week of the new year now. Don't raise your hands. But how many diets have already been started? And stopped at this point. And if not this week, the truth is, those of us who have started that, and every year I start one, I went out to, I have a weekly lunch with some profs from the seminary. Dr. Combs goes, he heard me say this past Thursday, I can't eat the chips because this is my annual diet for two months. And then I spend the other 10 months. Gaining it back and more, and many of you have been there, right? And you can kind of hear this defeatist, you know, attitude in what, I, in what I'm saying. I'm giving it a whirl. I'm going to try again. But if you're not, if you're not confident, you can do it. You're hesitant and perhaps won't even try at all. But God is saying here, you have absolute confidence in the obedience to which I have called you. Because I have guaranteed that I am working and will continue to work through you. And you see this combination of our work and God working through us to energize that work throughout Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul said of himself, I worked harder than all of the rest. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. He says in Colossians 1, I strenuously contend. But notice, with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Verse 13 says God is working in, our, in us to will and to act. So God is working in us to do these two things, to will and to act. That is, to desire and to do. God is working in us for us to desire to do what's right, and then for us to actually carry it out. To desire and to do his good purpose, what he wants done. Now that's a great verse, friends, Philippians 2.13, for you to have an understanding about the will of God. There's much debate about the will of God. How do I know the will of God? How do I find the will of God? <laughs> Here's the will of God. God, It's God's will that you obey, <laughs> God has given you his moral will, that is the Bible. He's told you what he wants you to do. You commit to doing that, and he works in you to fulfill his will, simply as you obey what he says. So it's not this mystical thing that you got to find. It's something you got to read and then do. And if you have his Holy Spirit, he works in you, So that you do what he wants. Giving us the desire and the ability to do the very things that he desires and wants. You see a similar dynamic in a prayer that Paul prayed for the Christians in a church in a city called Thessalonica. Second Thessalonians. He says, I pray this for you. We pray for you that our God may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. You see, God is the one who's doing that. God is the one who's creating those desires. God is the one who's prompting those, those deeds. And so if you're somebody who's obeying God, then it is proper, as Paul did there, to pray that those things will come to fruition. Because they are God's will. God's will is given to you in Scripture. So this is obedience at the deepest level of our thoughts and the words of than that come from them. If we are people who are aligning ourselves to obey God because of the example of Jesus, imitating Him, because He is Lord, because we know we'll be vindicated, whatever the circumstances of our obedience are, and knowing with confidence that God's at work in us, we commit ourselves to obey what God has said fully, completely, by His grace. And that'll show up at the radical root heart And it'll come out in the mundane things like how you talk. Why do I say that? How you talk. Because notice verse 14. After all of this, here's what verse 14 says. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Oh, yikes. I was all set to obey Jesus. (laughs) Until you said that. But you see, that's why Paul says it. He wants them and he wants us to see that if we're going to obey Jesus, it means our hearts are given to him. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, said Jesus. So it's going to show up in our words. It's going to show up in our actions. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. This grumbling is an expression of discontent rather than concern. You know the difference between an expression of discontent rather than concern because generally we find that grumbling is expressed to others rather than the parties involved. It's always expressed without constructive suggestions for making the situation better. How often do we hear in all walks of life people saying, They... (laughs) There's the tip off. So who are they? I don't know who they are, but they had better do something about this. What should they do? I don't know, but they better do something. And then we launch on a path of grumbling. Grumbling about our circumstances, grumbling about those circumstances that they're affected by others and what they've done or not done to us or for us. Discontent is always unfocused, it has no suggestions. It can identify problems, but never solutions. Do everything without grumbling and the discontent that goes, that it manifests. Arguing as well. Do everything without arguing. Arguing is unnecessarily confrontational. Now, notice I say unnecessarily. That is, there are times where it's necessary to confront. There's a word in your Bible, nutheteo, is the Greek word. And it means this loving confrontation with the truth for the purpose of change. It's not you versus me, but rather it's you versus the truth in that confrontation. It always involves a lack of deference, does this arguing. It's always concerned with self-interest and self-promotion, rather the interest of others, which verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2 told us should be our primary concern. So this obedience gets down to the level of our hearts and how those are manifests in our words. We obey because he's Lord, because he's exalted, because God is working in us. And that shows up in our words and in our relationships. And we obey, I say in your outline, because unbelievers are watching around us. Verse 15. So that. You may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Now, notice it says so that you may become not so that you may be. There's a difference between being and becoming. It's the difference between position and practice. It's describing here what should be the direction of our lives. It's not giving us some false notion of perfection, but it is saying that we must be in the process of becoming, in the process of changing and growing. And notice the description of what it is we're to be becoming. We are to become blameless and pure and children of God without fault. Now, let me explain those quickly. It's not perfection when it says blameless. Rather, we're to be blameless in this sense. The word means freedom from censure. It envisions the outsider looking in and not having grounds for condemnation of your life. And so as an illustration, spiritually mature people are of good reputation with those that are outside the church. In fact, the Bible says that for church leaders. You can't be a leader in the church unless you have a good reputation with those who are outside the church. And that's why when a deacon is nominated at our church, we have some pastors, a couple of men in our church that we're looking to ordain as pastors later this year. And for all of that, we have a questionnaire that goes out based upon scriptural qualifications that goes out not only to people that have served with them in the church, but people that have served with them outside the church, unbelievers. Because we want to know that there is no cause for censure in the way they live. Not only inside the church, but outside the church. We must also strive to be pure, it says. And the meaning of that word is unmixed. We must not willingly mix error with truth. This word was used to describe gold that was unmixed with alloy. We must not mix godliness with evil. This word was used in some context in a pharmaceutical setting. It was used to describe a drug that had not been mixed with other drugs. And in the mindset of the ancient world, that meant this drug was harmless. It was useful but harmless. It would not do damage. And that's the kind of purity that we're called to, purity that does not mix evil with our intent and thereby render injury to others and ourselves. Then and only then can we live as children of God. Children of God, verse 15 says, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. A warped and crooked generation. That's not just 2,000 years ago. That's 2017 America. We live in a warped and crooked generation. But we are to be different in that warped and crooked generation. We're to be set over against the crookedness and depravity of this culture. As some translations have it, crookedness and depravity. The Greek word for warped is the word from which we get our English word scoliosis. Many of you know scoliosis is a curving of the spine and left unchecked. And in severe cases, it can disfigure and deform. It's saying here that we live in a society that's morally twisted, spiritually crooked, deformed, disfigured. But there must be a difference between us and the world. And the emphasis of the word crooked is on the permanence of that twisted state. This world in which we live will never be anything but warped and crooked, depraved until our Lord Jesus sits upon the throne. And it tells us that if we will make a difference, being blameless, pure, and without fault as children of God, then you will shine like stars, says verse 16, in the universe as you hold firmly to the word of life. But only as you and I are pursuing that kind of holy life can we ever hope to make a difference in a dark world. Friends, just for a moment, think about how you've been drawn in to the crookedness of the world, of our culture. What do you watch on TV? And it never occurs. That's not pleasing to Jesus. You know, on uh, New Year's Eve, uh, there was was this big scandal because Mariah Carey, you know, messed up her act. And I saw that, you know, it was replayed endlessly. I saw that a couple times and, you know, they're talking about how she didn't know the words and she wasn't in sync with the music. And my first thought, honestly, was, I'm not thinking about it, I'm thinking about the fact that there's a naked woman on the screen. I mean, she's not completely naked. But she may as well be. And that's just acceptable in our culture. To walk out on stage before millions of people with virtually nothing on. And we get accustomed to that. And we watch it, and we think nothing of it. Friends, that's a warped and crooked generation that affects the way we think. And if you don't think about that, if it doesn't occur to you at all, then we need to understand that we are not immersing ourselves in the Word of God regularly. We must not be to see the difference between Him and that. Jesus said the night before he was crucified, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify. Set them apart. How? By your truth. And where is your truth found? In your word. And then verse 16 says, You will shine like stars in the universe as you hold firmly to the word of life. You hold firmly to the word of life and we radiate the truth as we hold on to that truth as we live our lives in accordance with that truth. And that's why Jesus said, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. So we hold on to the word of truth and we live in accordance with it. But that also has then the idea that we hold out the word of God to those in the darkness of this world. As we live it, we proclaim it with our lives. And therefore, we can do what Jesus said in that very same prayer when he said sanctify them by the truth. The night before he died, he said they are in the world, but they're not of the world. We are in this culture. We are in this cosmos, the New Testament word for world, impacting it with the light of the truth. And the light of the truth is seen in its brilliance because we're not of the world. There's a difference between Christians and the world. Doug McLaughlin, now retired was the pastor of Fourth Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He was the president of Central Baptist Seminary, and he was a professor at Northland Baptist Bible College. He published a book titled Reclaiming Authentic Fundamentalism. In one of the chapters of that book, he insightfully notes that there are two extremes that have to be avoided in our interaction with the culture in evangelism. One is the extreme of what he called unholy love. Unholy love is a love that seeks to embrace all at the expense of truth. So that we lose our message, but we gain large audiences. Those who approach ministry with an unholy love will have great followings, but they're followed because they have been absorbed into the culture and there's no longer a distinction. The other extreme that has to be avoided is unloving holiness. Those who have unloving holiness retain their message, but lose their audience. Instead of being absorbed into the culture, they're isolated from it. Those who have unholy love are sucked into the world. Those who have unloving holiness are hiding from the world. But the end result is always the same with both. The world fails to be radically impacted by the truth of the word of God. What we need is holy love. Holy love that motivates us to be blameless. That motivates us to be pure. To be children of God without fault. Yet in this world shining forth the truth of the word of God. So we obey because he's Lord. Because he's exalted. Because God's at work in us. Because unbelievers are watching. And lastly but quickly. We obey because believers have labored for us. Verse 16. Then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Here's what Paul, who wrote that, is saying. He founded the church in this city of Philippi, and he is saying, if you will do these things, then it will have positive impact on me. Someone who has a close relationship with you and who brought the word of God to you, And this should be a motivation to you, he's telling them, to do what is right because of those like me, Paul and his associates who have labored among you. In verse two of chapter two, he asked them, make my joy complete by being like minded, not having this disunity among you to the Thessalonians. He said the same kind of thing. He said, what is our hope, our joy or the crown in which we will glory? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Do you see what he's saying here? He is saying that you have had people, in his case, Paul himself and, and uh, others, who have had impact on the, the Philippians. And that should be one among the many motivations for you to obey. In order for it not only to benefit you, not only because it's in obedience to the Lord, but because it will encourage those who have served among you. In ministry, I can tell you. That you minister among people Over a long period of time And over a long period of time It's amazing how many people flake off How many people don't obey I got to tell you how encouraging it is When you have people who embrace the truth And say yes that's what I want to do And it stirs my heart and it, and it spurs you on to further Further good work for the Lord that's why I'm, I'm convinced the writer of Hebrews said, Make your leaders' work a joy, and not a burden. The best way you make the work of those who labor among you, your brothers and sisters, your leaders, whoever it may be, is by obeying and submitting to what the Word of God says. Here's your take-home truth then. Christians have the ability. Why? Because God is at work in them. And they have the motivation, imitating Christ. He is Lord. Having an impact on unbelievers, having an impact on believers. We have both the ability and the motivation to obey God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these moments to look at your word. Lord, we do believe that your word is truth. And it's by your word that we are sanctified, that we are set apart from the world. Thank you, Lord, for the blessed conviction that you bring upon those who belong to you so that we see that we are being moved into and absorbed into the culture. I pray that some of that conviction, Holy Spirit conviction, has taken place today. So that we see that we need to obey and that that obedience manifests itself radically at the root of our hearts and how we speak grumbling or arguing and to the cafeteria style approach that so many of us take to our walk with you Lord, we ask you to do your work in the hearts of your people this morning work that only you can do and as you do that and as we apply it to our lives then it will be you who gets the praise and we pray this in the name of jesus amen